Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another Comrade Cast. And today we are going to do, I guess, a double header episode. One smaller part will come out on Monday. Next will come out as regularly scheduled on Wednesday. So unfortunately, I had to skip an episode last week. I'll touch briefly on exactly what happened. Ended up being some technical difficulties that set me back a little bit more than I hoped they would. So what happened was, is that all of a sudden my computer was not booting into Windows for some reason. So this is a pretty serious problem. For whatever reason, I couldn't get it to boot into Windows outside of safe mode, which didn't really help me very much. So I decided, screw it, I'm just going to reinstall Windows because I don't have the time to troubleshoot through safe mode. Probably not the best plan because for whatever reason, after I had started the process of reinstalling Windows, what would happen is that the computer would crash uh, partway through reinstalling Windows. And now all of a sudden I've got no operating system on my computer. I can't access anything. And I am getting very worried at this point. I have no idea what's going on. I can't figure out why I am unable to boot up my computer, why my computer, for whatever reason, can't install Windows. And then I'm starting to think, do I actually need to take this into somebody? What I end up doing is I end up pulling what's called the CMOS battery or the KTS battery, which is a battery that's in the motherboard, which holds all your BIOS settings for the computer. And apparently sometimes there are certain settings in the BIOS which can prevent Windows from booting up properly or installing properly. And the only way to do that is do a factory reset on the BIOS. The only way to do that is to pull out this battery because the BIOS settings of the computer are saved on the motherboard for continual reference. This battery here ensures that there's a portion of the motherboard that's always powered so that it can retrieve the data that it needs to run the BIOS settings. So long story short, in order to do a factory, full factory reset on a computer, you need to pull out this little battery and then that will reset the BIOS to factory settings. And I do that and amazingly, my computer works, no problem. It installs Windows without issue and I am breathing a deep sigh of relief. And fortunately for me, I was able to back up most of my files and programs and everything that I needed to the new version and to the new install of Windows. However, I wasn't able to save everything and some stuff specifically for the show has been lost or <laughs> misplaced or destroyed or whatever happened in this technical mishap. And I've done my best to recreate everything. So hopefully it all works out the same. But if there is some jank, I still have not completely smoothed out all the technical difficulties. All right. So with that out of the way, I want to get to one last bit of housekeeping for the Comrade cast. We are going to officially announce a new platform, a new leg of the show. I have finally bitten the bullet, and after years and years of resistance, I've jumped on the same ship as everybody else and officially made a TikTok account for the podcast. So this is something that I've been doing behind the scenes for the last month or so. I set it up about a month ago. And I have been posting the occasional little snippets. It's basically the same shorts that go up on YouTube, just posted on TikTok because it's extremely easy and low effort on my part to just 
upload the same video onto two platforms. But that being said, in my month trying to figure out what the hell this whole TikTok thing is, I have been spamming a whole lot more clips on uh, the TikTok account than have been spammed onto the YouTube shorts. Obviously, it's a great way to get a new and unfamiliar audience engaged with and familiar with the Comrade cast. That being said, oh my God, does TikTok have some of the worst comments and political engagement I've ever seen in my life? God, it's a cesspool. It's so bad. But long story short, if TikTok is your jam, you can now find us at Comrade Cast on TikTok, and uh, I will be uploading the occasional shorts and snippets of old episodes onto there. So if you're already on TikTok, if it's already your jam, make sure to sign up and check us out just so nobody freaks out. This is absolutely no way, shape, or form becoming my main platform or anything like that. This is a very uh, low effort way to enhance and broaden the perspective of the show. So with that, I'm going to try and actually record again two episodes today. We're going to be talking about Gaza for the first part of the episode yet again, doing a very kind of quick update on what's going on because I have a lot of things to say, but mainly I've got a lot of things to wildly speculate about on the subject. The second topic, however, I shall leave as a mystery. All right, so without further ado, let us jump into our checkup on the situation on the Gaza Strip. We are going to start today's show with a white pill, thankfully. As you may have recalled when this whole situation first exploded on, we looked at some polling in regards to the Israeli population's feeling on Netanyahu, and it wasn't great. And it doesn't seem like now we have this poll is from November 3rd, so this is two days ago as of recording. So this is definitely a very up-to-date information here. This is definitely a very recent poll. We have some, in my opinion, pretty good numbers, although they could be uh, a little bit better, but this gives me a lot of hope. And I think it's a great way to start the show here. So we have a poll here. This is from an Israeli news station. Specifically, apparently it's called Channel 13 Politics, or I don't know if it's just Channel 13. And this is the political segment of the show. Regardless here, they're covering a poll. And at a snapshot, we can see right now that it says, what should Netanyahu do? We have 47% of Israeli people saying he should resign after the war. We have 29% saying he should resign immediately. And then coming in at last place, we have a mere 18% saying that he should re remain in his position. But this is a total disaster for Netanyahu. We are seeing a complete crumbling of his support. He is absolutely gaining no uh, rally around the flag effect whatsoever, it appears. In fact, it seems like the Israeli people are holding him as at least partially accountable for the attack which happened God, nearly a month ago at this point. But before we move into that kind of wild speculation, I do want to draw attention here to a, another poll. This is from a week ago as of recording. What this poll shows here is that almost half of Israelis want to hold off on any invasion of Gaza and what may indicate a dip in support for the planned next stage in the counteroffensive against Hamas holding some 200 hostages. And again, I very highly doubt 
that this percentage would, would have changed very wildly in the past week. I don't think that there has been any significant events. If anything, I would imagine that more and more of the Israeli people are probably becoming more hesitant to actually engage in some sort of ground invasion of Gaza. And I can get the Israeli people's frustration because it's seeming more and more like at least Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't really have a plan when it comes to Gaza. As you guys may remember, as we've been talking about this for, as I said, nearly a month now, we have been waiting for the other shoe to drop here as Israeli forces have continually mustered outside of the Gaza Strip. And we have just been sitting here waiting and waiting. And I feel like we've all been holding our breaths, waiting for something to happen. And I think there are a couple things happening right now to explain why the IDF might be holding off. And with that, dear comrades, I now give you what you're all here to see. Hardcore wild speculation. We'll work ourselves as a sounding board right now. And uh, see what comes up through this conversation. So anyway, I was having a conversation with a close friend of mine, and this friend, he is very informed as to what is happening in Gaza, knows the ins and outs, uh, extremely smart. As he gave me the seeds to germinate what we're talking about right now, and honestly, a lot of what we're talking about right now, I am very interested to get feedback from a lot of you guys, see what you guys think, see what you guys feel. And another thing before I continue, I should mention that, of course, my friend is more right-wing than I am and a touch bit more prone to conspiracy-minded thinking than I am. And when it comes to discussing Israel and Gaza, he has one major difference from me. In fact, I guess weird reflections of each other that he is very pro-Israel but he hates Benjamin Netanyahu. He favors a one-state solution, and he sees Netanyahu as the main roadblock in achieving that, where for me, I favor the Palestinian side. I favor a two-state solution, but I hate Hamas. I see Hamas as the biggest impediment to achieving a peaceful two-state solution resolution. So I'm discussing and, and uh, feeling out the sentiment with my friend, and he says to me, and of course, I want you guys to bear in mind that I am not saying that this is true and that this is happening. This is how you really start a serious conversation. So with all of that, so with all of that groundwork laid, we're having a conversation about what's happening in Gaza. And I'm talking about how I'm feeling like there's this kind of impending doom like we're all just sitting here holding our breath waiting for something to happen anyway my buddy he says to me i think that there is something happening and that there are movements and that there are attacks into gaza by the idf however we are not hearing anything about them they are not being reported or being distributed to the world at large. And the reason this is, is because in a lot of these initial raids and initial attacks into Gaza, apparently the IDF forces got severely mauled, got significantly mauled in a way that they weren't expecting. And this, as a result, has caused them to back off and reassess their 
plans and reassess what they're going to do. We've said it before. I've said it before. Lots of other people have said it before that this whole attack by Hamas on October 7th just screams that we're going to attack you in a vicious, brutal fashion. So you will be forced to come and attack us. And when you come and attack us, we are going to have a litany of death traps waiting for you. I have seen no reports to offer any type of credence to this and to what my friend is saying here. But I will be real that I genuinely wouldn't be surprised if it was true and that over the next couple days and weeks or months or however long it takes, we do start to end up hearing reports of significantly high IDF casualties when they were trying to initially move into Gaza. When you hear Israel talking about pulling up reservists, what they're really talking about is pulling up conscripts. And in many cases, these are people who have everyday lives. These are not professional soldiers. These are soldiers who have military training and are being asked to serve once again when the time is needed. And Hamas knows and understands that the IDF is loath to put its forces in any kind of danger, as you would expect with any type of military force or military operation. But for Israel, the considerations are even deeper than casualty numbers because, and I'm sure most of you guys know this, but just as a brief reminder, Israel has compulsory military service. So you are automatically conscripted into military service in Israel, whether you are a man or a woman, both of them have to serve in the IDF. But the point that I want to stress here is that Casualties for the IDF is going to have significant ripple effects in Israeli society in a way that it wouldn't have in other societies. And Israel has such a small population already, and this population is divided into many different interest groups. Israel doesn't have these kind of massive pools of manpower that they can draw on. Israel is not Russia in the sense that they have, you know, territories in the middle of the Ural Mountains where people live impoverished lives and they can pick them up and send them to the front lines in Ukraine. And if some of these unfortunate people from uh, the rural Ural, that's a great, that's a great phrase, the rural Ural Mountains end up dying in Ukraine, it's not going to have a huge political impact on Russia as a whole. I personally think and because I, I think that, and I like to think that people generally in high-ranking military positions are somewhat smarter than I am, that people within the IDF know this, and particularly political factions within Israel itself know this. You have 10,000 IDF casualties in some sort of invasion, ground invasion of Gaza. That is going to radically alter the face of Israeli politics for a generation. And this calculation is going to affect Israeli society. And this calculation is affecting Israeli politics and how its various factions are maneuvering for power behind the scenes. We'll get to that in just a second. But before I jump into that, I want to talk a little bit again and focus in again on this actual ground invasion of Gaza, if it's going to happen. 
at this point, it seems like much more of an if than it did two weeks ago, which makes them, again, extremely hesitant, much more hesitant than just about any other country on the planet to actually send its soldiers into harm's way and wasted soldiers on frivolous operations. What is their actual tactics? Because, and he understands this, that just bombing buildings really isn't going to do that much. It really actually isn't going to do anything in the long term in terms of Israel's actual tactical military goals. Because again, most of you listening to this podcast have a pretty good understanding of military history, and you can go back and look at your military history books and see numerous times in which cities and urban centers were bombed into complete and total oblivion, yet that only made things easier for the defenders. The rubble, the destruction, the mazes that the falling buildings created. Of course, the prime example being in World War II, Stalingrad, the Germans unleashed a intensive and insane bombing campaign against the city, effectively leaving the city as mostly ruins and rubble. Yet this only helped the Red Army defend the city as it ended up creating plenty of outposts and outcroppings and little dugouts that they could defend that otherwise wouldn't have existed if this building hadn't fallen down and created them. All of these actually helped the defender defend this urban territory rather than ended up weakening the defender's capacity to defend it. So it's just such a disastrous tactic on behalf of Israel. And it's just going to engender so much bitterness and so much hatred to the point where I think that even Israeli people within Israel are turning against this tactic as we have seen not only are people of Israel turning against Netanyahu in a big way, they're turning against the idea of some sort of military intervention in Gaza to begin with. And on top of this all, Hamas lives underground in Gaza. This is something that is very well known, that the extensive tunnel networks that Hamas has engineered within Gaza are apparently quite an engineering marvel. You can effectively move in and out of Gaza, come up in apartment buildings, ambush people from behind, go back down in these tunnels, move into another area, fire, move back into the tunnels, right? And these spread all across Gaza. Okay? And then all that you're going to end up doing with these aerial bombardments is, again, just giving Hamas more dugouts and more areas that they can hide in when they emerge from out of their tunnels. What we are seeing right now is, I think, the very effective limits on Israel's aerial bombardment campaign. We are seeing it unquestionably spill into the territory of war crime. All that this tactic is doing is engendering so much bitterness and hatred from seemingly everybody. Not only are seeing Israeli airstrikes bomb refugee camps continually, they are bombing hospitals, they are causing far more casualties than were caused in the initial attack. One of the things that really drives me absolutely crazy around the discourse regarding Israel and Gaza is how some people will just write off civilians because they were being used as human shields by Hamas. So in my opinion, there's absolutely no question that Hamas does this, that Hamas uses civilians 
as human shields to hide behind missile attacks and artillery attacks. To me, in my mind, there's absolutely no question that Hamas does that. But that doesn't mean that uh, Israel gets to be like, well, guess they're being used as human shields. Got no choice. Guess we got to murder them. And all that this is going to end up doing is engendering support for Hamas within Gaza and stoke anti-Israeli sentiment across the globe. And all of this engenders the question, of course, what can be done? And the thing is that I do believe that Israel could go in there and through systemic military operation, completely root out Hamas and destroy them and destroy their capabilities to both wage war and govern the Gaza Strip. The thing is, as I alluded to earlier, that's an operation that who knows how many casualties that's going to take. 10,000 casualties, 20,000 casualties, 30,000 casualties. So if these people die on the battlefield, you're not losing people who, you know, volunteered to be in the military and this was their entire job, right? You were losing someone who was also a productive member of society in another economic sector. And not only is that going to kill people who had, again, regular average jobs, right? These are people who are called up reservists, right? These are software engineers, waiters, students, uh, normal people that were living normal lives that were called up in a time of need. But that all obscures, I think, the real frustrating calculus for Israel, because I genuinely don't know what can be done for them at this point, because every time I think about potential solutions, potential actions, it seems like there's no good choice. And with that, I want to take a somewhat of a wild turn here and delve a little bit into the demographics of Israel. I do want to correct myself here. I said there was only about 6 million people in Israel. I'm not sure where I got that number from. The population is substantially higher, about 9.5 million people. Still an incredibly small population. That being said, 9.5, a little bit higher than six. So anyway, if you guys remember an episode I did a while back, I did an episode talking about the crumbling demographics across the world. And one of the countries which I said had good demographics was Israel. And I actually got a lot of pushback from that because I learned that despite this on the surface being a healthy looking demographic pyramid, there are serious issues underneath the surface. So what was brought to my attention after I did that episode and I talked about the demographics of Israel is people brought it to my attention that the biggest population driver for this young glut here we see in the demographics of Israel is the Orthodox Jewish population. Apparently, the Orthodox Jewish population has a policy within their community to have as many children as they possibly can. And this is interesting because there are similar theories in both Islamic religion and Christian religion. I'm more familiar with the, the Christian ver variant. They have a theory, it's called quiver theory, where effectively your job is to go out and procreate and create as many quivers. Every little baby you create is a quiver, an arrow and a quiver of God. 
Sorry. But you understand what I mean, right? This is a very common, very common doctrine among Orthodox religions of a variety of different types. Not only is the Orthodox Jewish community the major driver of this young population growth, they are also exempt from a number of roles within Israeli society. The most glaring and predominant one being they are exempt from mandatory military service, which to me is crazy, right? How can you expect to reap all the benefits of a secure state of Israel secured by the IDF without actually doing anything to contribute to it yourself? It's, I can't, I, I don't know how this state of affairs has managed to manifest itself in Israeli society, but I can't see that this can maintain itself forever. But that doesn't tell, but that doesn't tell the whole story because right now, as you probably are unsurprisingly going to guess, they are the most vocal proponents of escalating the war with Gaza and not just the war with Gaza, they're escalating uh, an annexation of the West Bank. It's very convenient that these would be the people who are the number one proponents of escalation, yet they don't actually have to do any of the fighting or any of the dying. But all of this comes into the rather ghoulish demographic calculations for the Orthodox Jewish community within Israel. In fact, if you send the IDF out to engage in this military operation in Gaza, and you lose 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 Jewish soldiers in this operation, all of those are going to come from the secular Jewish population. And losing that many people from the secular Jewish population is going to create a massive demographic hole in that segment of Israeli society, one in which the Orthodox Jewish population will be all too happy to fill. So effectively, if secular Jewish people go and die in this war, it benefits the Orthodox Jewish population the most in terms of their achieving their political goals. And I do think on some level, the IDF is aware of this because the IDF understands that none of their power base is going to come from the Orthodox Jewish community because none of their conscripts come from that community. So they are loath to waste any soldiers, as I mentioned before. And when we start to see all of these different factors come into play, it makes total sense that the Israeli commanders would do everything in their power to protect the, the lives of their soldiers and do anything they can to minimize their casualties, because any casualty is going to have ripple effects throughout Israeli society in a way that it's not going to happen in other countries. And then we haven't mentioned even the third pillar of Israeli society, which is Arabic Israelis, which are that are Arabic or Muslim, but live inside of Israel and have Israeli citizenship and vote within Israeli society. These people are really caught in the middle because the secular Jewish population is not hugely enthusiastic and hugely friendly to this population of people, but they understand that if the Orthodox Jewish population got in control, huh, 
life for the Arabic population inside Israel probably going to get a lot harder. Anyway, with that though, I want to leave that there with you guys pondering the rather depressing demographic calculation that political groups are undergoing right now in Israel and understanding that for Israel right now, they are in a position where they just have a litany of bad options. So honestly, to me, the least bad solution, which probably isn't going to happen, but my ideal situation would be Israel effectively annex Gaza, annexes Gaza and then give the Palestinians a choice to either become Israeli citizens or move to the West Bank and then they liberate the West Bank and the West Bank becomes a, a Palestinian free state. But, he, but again, this is definitely some sort of, of pipe dream because particularly the Orthodox Jewish population of Israel is going to be loath to give um, Palis the Palestinians some sort of Israeli citizenship or recognition. But ultimately, I think that this has to be the only realistic step for stability and functionality in the region. And I really do hope for them that they will find a way to choose the least bad of all the options. But yeah, right now, it remains to be seen. I, I gotta say, I don't have a lot of hope. Not feeling hugely optimistic. This, to me, I can see as the, the least bad option of all the options available. That being said, though, I do see small threads of optimism within the Israeli population at large who seem to want themselves to find some sort of peaceful resolution or a way out of this problem. They, too, seem like they aren't exactly enthusiastic about the bloodshed either. So with that brings us to the end of our first part of our mini part of the Comrade cast, trying to get things back on track after a little bit of uh, technical hiccups. With that We're going to leave that there. And I hope you'll shortly for our second part, which we're going to delve into our mystery subject. And until that time, this has been the Comrade signing off for now. And you guys take care.